A reading from St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the first one. Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And we are all made to drink of one spirit. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot would say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear would say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and those members of the body that we think less honorable we clothe with greater honor. And our less respectable members, <laughs> let you interpret that part, are treated with greater respect whereas our more respectable members do not need this. But God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior member, that there may be no dissension within the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then deeds of power, then gifts of healing, forms of assistance, forms of leadership, various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But strive for the greater gifts. Hear what the Spirit is saying to God's people, and hear what is probably St. Paul's wisest teaching. What does it mean for us to be made in the image of God? The opening chapter of the Hebrew Bible, after all, tells us that we human beings are made in God's image. So yeah, I'm going to assume that this is something that's probably pretty important for us to, you know, figure out, to grapple with. So what exactly does this mean? Again, that we human beings are made in the image of the divine. 
Well, right out of the gate, the earliest Christians were not at all shy in proclaiming that God is love. So it would make an awful lot of sense to say that people are are born with the capacity to love if God is love and we're made in God's image, right? And this is a nice thought, but again, what exactly are we talking about? What exactly does this mean? Are we merely saying that God feels love because most of us equate love with a feeling? Or are we saying that God does loving acts because others of us like to think of love as an action, as a verb? Is that what we're saying? I mean, are we simply saying that we human beings have been created with the capacity to feel loving feelings and to do loving things? Is this what it means to be made in the image of the God who is love? I don't think so, because if you think about it, if this were the case, it would mean that the image of God in us would be contained only to our feelings and actions and nothing more. Nothing wrong with feelings and actions, but it seems like it should be bigger than this. And The problem with this way of thinking is that the entirety of your being, your personhood, It wouldn't be made in the image of God, not the entirety, but only certain parts of yourself would be, your feelings, your actions. And I don't know about you all, but I feel like the image of God should somehow be more all-encompassing than this, and that love should be about something more than just our feelings and actions imitating God's feelings and actions. I mean, think about the first time you fell in love, for example. Or if you've ever been married, think about your wedding day. As you were losing yourself in your beloved's eyes, in your beloved's embrace, was it just your feelings and actions that were impacted? Or did you find that every ounce of you was wrecked (laughs) by love, disrupted by love? Did you find that every ounce of you was completely enraptured and eclipsed by love? Were you head over heels in love or just feelings over actions in love? You get my point? It seems to me that we need a, deep, need a deeper definition of love if we're going to get at the heart of what it means for us to be made in the image of this God who is love. Well, from the very beginning, the church also defined what it meant whenever it boldly made the claim that God is love. Early Christians taught that God is love because God exists as a mysterious communion of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In other words, the phrase God is love is synonymous with the phrase God is Trinity. In a fascinating writing from the ancient church, St. Gregory Nazianzus one of my favorites. He should be one of your favorites too. He explains why we Christians call God Father. 
And he articulates something that most of us in the church clearly have not ever thought about today. He said that we Christians call God Father, not because God mirrors what earthly fathers feel and what earthly fathers do. No, he said that God is called Father because you cannot think of a father without also thinking of that father's child. In other words, the very notion of fatherhood implies a relationship. A father cannot be a father if that father never fathers a child, right? Gregory says the same is true of the Son of God. The very notion of sonship implies a relationship. A son cannot exist if they do not have a parent, whether biological or adopted, right? In other words, you cannot think about God the Father apart from Jesus the Son, nor can you think about Jesus the Son apart from God the Father. In other words, God's very being is relationship. This means that God the Father does not exist first and then relate to the Son and the Holy Spirit. No, no, God the Father's being is is his relationship with the Son and the Holy Spirit. This, my friends, is what the earliest Christians meant whenever they said that God is love. God doesn't just do loving things or feel loving feelings. God's very existence is love. So what does this mean? For those of us, then, who are made in God's image, it means that in a way that mysteriously echoes the Trinity, we also find our being in relationship. Now, I know that this will be a paradigm shift for most of us, but follow my line of thought here. Without countless protons and electrons and neutrons being in relationship to one another in your body, without molecules weaving themselves together to form the biological tapestry that is your body, without 30 million or 40 million, no, I'm sorry, without 30 trillion or 40 trillion cells coming together into a grand symphony of relationships within your body, and without all of the organs of your body like working together in the ways that they do, you just straight up would not exist. Your very existence is a relationship of particles, molecules, cells, and organs. Furthermore, without your parents coming together, yeah, you wouldn't be here. <laughs> your existence is prefaced by the relationship of your parents. And without your social relationships, your uniquely charming and dashing personality would not be what it is today. How you have reacted to the people of your past, it shapes you, and it makes you who you are to the people in your present. Past love has shaped you for the better, and, you know, past trauma probably is still shaping you for the worst, right? Especially if you haven't dealt with it. And furthermore, if gravity, 
did not relate to the Earth in the way that it does, if the ozone layer didn't relate to the Earth in the way that it does, if the Earth itself wasn't specifically located where it is in relationship to the other planets and the sun, like, you wouldn't exist. <laughs> nor would I. Nor would life on this planet. The point, all of life is relationship. Life is irreducibly relationship. Life is a cosmic tapestry of interconnectedness. In a word, life is love. Existence is love. And like God the Father, we don't exist first and then relate to other people and things because apart from those other people and things, we would not exist to begin with. Just as it is with God, beautifully and mysteriously, life also is communion for us. I mean, most people don't know this. Even the word that we get our English word person from, prosopon, originally it meant I have my face turned towards someone or something. To be a person means to be in relationship. It means to be turned outward towards something else other than yourself. Now, of course, the problem is that those of us who have been indoctrinated into the ways of Western culture, which is pretty much the entire globe at this point, we live out most of our lives pretending that none of any of this that I've just said <laughs> is true about God, about ourselves. And we have blinded ourselves to the countless relationships that make us who we are. We turn our faces away from other people and things, and we focus our gaze exclusively upon ourselves. If there is such a thing as sin, my friends, this is it. Because it is nothing less than the failure to understand and to actualize the image of God within us and within other people. For we believe that we are self-made, self-contained individuals. We deny just how much everything and everyone else contributes to our being. And as a result, we treat other people and animals and plants and Mother Earth and even God as objects of consumption, as means to an end and not as those things that play an important role in making us who we are. And we don't realize just how much cutting ourselves off from others, just how much entrenching ourselves in our own egos, how much this is actually obliterating us individually and socially. If life is relationship, the more we blind ourselves to this, the more we fail to live into it, to live into reality. And the more we fail in the quest of finding our true selves and what life is all about. For it's only in communion, in relationship, that we discover our deepest selves and the universe's deepest wisdom. I mean, is this not exactly 
what St. Paul is trying to get us to wrap our heads around this morning. It is in the context of the church, he says, that people are meant to discover that their existence is like what a hand's existence is or what a foot's existence is in relationship to the rest of a body. We are all intertwined just as parts of a body are intertwined. If everyone was a foot or a hand or an ear or an eye, there would be no such thing as the body, just a part, right? A series of parts. These body parts can only exist if they are in relationship with one another. So if we try to cut ourselves off from others and tell them that we don't need them, it would be like your head saying to your feet, yeah, I don't need you. I'm good on my own. Thank you very much. And if we go ahead and decapitate ourselves off from the rest of the body, it will only end in disaster. I don't think I need to tell you that a head cannot survive without a body, nor a body without a head. Both things need to be present and connected in a real tangible way to each other in order for, you know, the whole thing to survive. What St. Paul is saying is that the more we attempt to sever ourselves off from others, out of the shame of not feeling good enough or out of the pride of feeling that others are not good enough, the more we end up damaging ourselves and others in the end. And instead of finding ourselves and discovering our own uniqueness shoulder to shoulder with others, we only end up losing ourselves and conforming ourselves to everyone else who has also lost themselves. Entrenching yourself in your own ego is not (laughs) self-discovery, my friends. It's the furthest thing from it. While we may believe that we are breaking out of conformity with others and discovering our true selves, all we're doing is conforming ourselves to the self-centeredness of the human ego. And there is nothing, nothing unique or special or self-actualizing about this whatsoever. My friends, it's one thing to believe all of this in theory. It is another thing entirely to be enlightened by it and to live, to live from this revelation. It's one thing to believe in your head that all of life is relationship, but it's another thing entirely to let your personhood find its rest in the life that is relationship. After 2,000 years of Christianity, we in the pews and around the altars have yet to grapple with the implications of this very orthodox, traditionally rooted, Trinitarian vision. If what the church fathers and the creeds say is true, then it would mean, most of all, that people are not means to an end, but they are ends in and of themselves. So any and every single time the church seeks to use people as means to an end, treating them 
more as dogmatic receptacles than human beings, treating them more as numbers in the pews and parochial reports than human beings, treating them more as like political catalysts than human beings, treating them more as an offering plate than human beings. We are oppressing the image of God in them and suppressing the image of God in ourselves. And every single time we divide ourselves along national and political and racial and ideological and theological and dogmatic and gender and sexual and generational lines, we are failing to live into God's image. And we are diminishing the capacity of those around us to achieve their personhood, to discover the image of God within themselves. Anytime. Anytime, to borrow St. Maximus the Confessor's words, we make division out of difference, out of diversity, we are failing, failing to live into our personhood, failing to reflect God's image. My friends, we in the church, we need to quit baptizing and christening and blessing American Western individualism. And we need to start calling it out for what it is, an impasse, a dead end when it comes to the journey of human fulfillment, happiness, and self-discovery. We need to start saying it's not the way. In order to say this, we actually have to know what the real way is. My friends, the church is not an institution. She is not conglomeration of like-minded individuals. She's not a religion. She's not a club. She's not a nonprofit. She is the fulfillment of all being. She is the intersection, the crossroads of the cosmos. She is communion as God is communion. She is love as God is love. It is time for us to become what we are. The unveiling of God's way of being in the world. Until we do this, we can't honestly say that we are actually the church. Mm-hmm.